This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about a benzodiazepine-sparing alcohol withdrawal protocol for the hospital. So how are you doing, John? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. Hey, before we talk about this article, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? So one thing that I've kind of been reading a lot about lately, and I think I've been seeing a lot of press and discussion about is is basically some methadone dysregulation or deregulation. I think many of us know that in terms of MAT forms, methadone is probably considered the gold standard of opioid maintenance treatment for most people and has been around the longest, although it's really heavily regulated at this point by the government. Typically, patients have to come in daily to a methadone maintenance program. It has to be uh, registered. And methadone itself is a Schedule II drug in terms of being its use for opioid use disorder. So there's a lot of talk, and uh, there's a Pew-funded report that they talked about in ASAM that came out. And basically, it was calling on both SAMHSA and the DEA to kind of deregulate some of these criteria. One thing is that there is kind of a double standard with methadone, as you know. If a patient comes into the office and they stub their toe, I could give them methadone for pain. However, it would be illegal for me to give them methadone for opioid use disorder treatment. So there's thoughts about deregulating it from a Schedule 2 to a Schedule 3 drug. That way, just like buprenorphine, a provider could call that into a pharmacy locally, and you could treat someone outside of a formalized program. And there's also a call on for the government to also basically expand access. And I think many of us know that uh, President Biden has made a statement of basically somewhat promising universal access to MAT services by the year 2025. So I think it's a really interesting idea. And I, I think that probably in the near future, I could see this resource being much easier in terms of access for our patients. I think that would be amazing. It has always bugged me that methadone alone has this special regulation where you can prescribe it for one indication, but not for another. For those people who aren't doctors, it may seem sort of logical that every indication would require a separate authorization of some kind, but that's not really how it works with prescription medication. A medicine gets an authorization and then it's free to be prescribed however doctors in the community want to prescribe it. And sometimes that's just practical. I mean, they can't test every single possible use of a medication. You know, if you're putting out a new blood pressure medicine, do you have to run a study in women and then a study in men and then a study in young people, then a study in old people, then a study with another drug, then a study alone? You know, you they don't research every single possible use of the medication. They research just enough to get it approved and then let the community kind of test it out and come up with new ideas and ways to use it, except for medications for opiate use disorder. They cannot be prescribed for that one reason, although you can easily prescribe exactly the same medicine to exactly the same patient with a diagnosis of pain. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think early on in my career, I thought it was a matter of training, but now I'm kind of realizing that it's really actually just restricting access. Well, especially since other opiates that have proven to be equally dangerous are available to any doctor to prescribe without any additional training. Yeah, so hopefully in the future, this will be a resource a lot more people have access to. What have you been thinking about this week, Sonia? Well, I read this super interesting article, and I was kind of sad because I wished I wrote this article. You know, sometimes I read research, I wish I had done the research, but I just want to share it with our listeners. So I'll put the link in the show notes. But this was about the experience of MAT treatment 
within a primary care practice, and it was done in a rural area of New York. And they did a retrospective cohort study of their own patients, basically just describing their practice's experience treating opiate use disorder. It was a private primary care practice. About 75% of their patients had Medicaid as primary insurance. There was a single doctor in this practice, and they treated fewer than 200 patients over a 12-year period. So not even one new patient a month on average. So very modest substance use disorder clinic. The paper just presented their outcomes data, and they had 67% of their patients still in care at one year and 47% of their patients still in care at three years. And I just wanted to tell our listeners about this because it shows that in a primary care setting, it can be really effective treating opioid use disorder. They had a strong doctor-patient relationship in an established practice, and the patients really stuck with them. It was kind of similar to my practice and shows that you can do this kind of care without becoming a dedicated addiction clinic. You don't need to see a thousand patients. You don't have to hire a bunch of counselors. You don't have to set up any kind of crazy different program. You don't have to get new billing. You know, you can just see those patients in your primary care practice, one new patient a month for substance use disorder. And as the years go on, you'll build up a cohort of people whose lives you've really impacted. So shout out to the Meyer and Cope family practice in Broadle Bay, New York, and keep up the good work, guys. So John, you and I both provide MAT in this kind of setting. So how do you think our prescribing and treating opiate use disorder in primary care compares to treating it in, say, a dedicated addiction medicine clinic? I think it's tough to say because I've never worked at a dedicated addiction medicine clinic, but I can tell you what patients often tell me because most patients have at some point, I'd say at least half of them have been in a dedicated addiction medicine treatment clinic at one point. And they often kind of relate the experience at my office really positively. I think that I do do other care for them. So I do their preventive health care. I manage medical comorbidities. I manage psychotropic medications. And then, you know, recently I've actually have a cohort of people I'm treating for hepatitis C and, and they really realize how much I care about them. And I think they realize how much I'm invested in them too. And I think they kind of buy in more to the relationship. I think at times they feel that maybe previous clinics, for one reason or another, they would go, it'd be a two-minute visit where they leave a urine and then walk out with their script. And they kind of felt maybe that there wasn't as much engagement. So I think it's a great thing. They're my loyalist patients by far. Yeah. I feel like I'm always stealing other patients from addiction clinics. You know, I'll have a patient come in And then they'll bring in a friend or family member who's also in addiction treatment. And those patients will immediately want to switch over to our practice as well. And I don't think it's me. I think it's just the nice primary care setting. You know, you've got our nice nurses and you can sit in the waiting room with little old ladies who are there for their arthritis management or their diabetes. And you can, I don't know, maybe just feel like it's a little less stigmatizing, a little less addiction focused. It's just part of your normal life. I think the downside is sometimes we don't provide as many addiction-focused services as I might want to. You know, we can provide a lot of services in our office, but there's even more. If we did more addiction, I could dedicate more resources to things that that population needs specifically. But I think we do a pretty good job, and I think patients are pretty pretty happy with the experience. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a good thing. Anyone that's listening, that probably most people listening do do this service already. But if you're not, I'll tell you, it's it's probably one of the best, most rewarding parts of my job, at least. So, John, I'm eager to hear about this article, which is all about the hospital and not about the office. Are you ready to get to it? Yeah, sure. So this is a really kind of interesting article that I'm glad we pulled out for this uh, podcast episode. It's called Outcomes After Implementation of a Benzodiazepine Sparing Alcohol Withdrawal Order Set in an Integrated Healthcare System. And it's from JAMA Open Network in February 2022. 
So a little bit about background. So alcohol use disorder accounts for 400,000 hospitalizations each year with a total estimated cost of $3.5 billion. Two to 7% of the patients admitted with alcohol use disorder develop alcohol withdrawal syndromes. 20% of individuals with alcohol withdrawal syndromes develop severe life-threatening complication rates with mortality rates from 3 to 15%. The current standard of care in many institutions involved symptom-triggered benzodiazepine use to mitigate withdrawal, and symptom-trigger versus scheduled has been associated with limited benzodiazepine exposure, so decreased benzodiazepine use. With adverse effects to benzodiazepines currently being associated such as sedation, falls, respiratory depression, agitation, delirium, and increased mortality, exploration into alternative methods of addressing alcohol withdrawal symptoms with anticonvulsants and alpha-2 adrenergic agonists has occurred. So what's the clinical question from this study? Well, it's more actually of a quality improvement project and study, but the question is, what is the association between the use of a revised protocol incorporating benzodiazepine-sparing treatments with outcomes? Have you seen this done before, Sonia? No. I mean, I don't work very much as a hospitalist. I do a little bit of moonlighting, but not very much. And the alcohol withdrawal protocol that sort of comes up automatically in our health system has benzodiazepines, and that seems to be the featured medication. So I had never even thought that this was possible. And of course, if I think about it logically, sure, I use non-benzodiazepine medications to treat alcohol withdrawal in the outpatient setting. So I don't see why I wouldn't use it in the inpatient setting, but I just hadn't even thought about it. I think I'm more comfortable using benzodiazepines inpatient because I feel like it's a more controlled environment. I'm not worried the patient is going to harm themselves with a whole bottle of benzodiazepines. I'm less worried they're going to have access to large amounts of alcohol. So I've been very comfortable using them in the hospital and have not been comfortable using them outpatient for alcohol withdrawal. How about you? Do you use this? Yeah, I was going to talk about that later on, but actually I came from an institution where we actually did kind of my last year in residency implement a similar system to this study with relatively favorable results. So I've seen it done before. You're, you're certainly right. I don't think many people have, though. Well, let's hear what they found. So the population in this study was non-obstetric adults presenting during the study period with alcohol withdrawal symptoms. They excluded anyone that was pregnant and patients under 18 years of age. They had 22,899 patients presenting to the hospital with alcohol withdrawal symptoms during the study time frame. The study design, it's a retrospective quality improvement project evaluation. It was performed at Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, Integrated Healthcare Delivery System, and that's 4.4 million members it serves with 21 different hospital sites in the trial. The system-approved hospital-based order set was approved and implemented from October 1st, 2018, and they basically collected data until October 1st, 2019. And they compared this to data collected system-wide for the preceding four years, so from October 2014 to October 2018. The main measures were adjusted rate ratios for medication use, inpatient mortality, length of stay, intensive care unit admission, and non-elective readmissions within 30 days comparing pre- and post-implementation time periods. They did a lot of covariate adjustment, which I thought was kind of interesting. They did age, sex. They did whether it was an inpatient or outpatient admission. They did weekday versus weekend admission, trying to mitigate the fact that staffing coverages might dictate kind of what you order on the weekend versus the weekday facility. They did if you had urine toxicology results present and how they affected your selection. They did this thing called a LAPS-2 score, which is called the Laboratory and Acute Physiology Score. 
and the comorbidity point score is called the COPS-2. Most people, including myself, until I read this, have probably never heard of them. They're basically very complicated EMR-driven formulas to determine kind of medical complexity and how sick of a population you're dealing with. So it's it's a calculation that the average person probably wouldn't do on their own. It's more kind of EMR-derived. Basically, a moment to talk about what protocol they actually used. So basically, you went to like three different branches of protocol. So, and it really went off of what was called your Paul score, but also your CWA score. I think most of us are aware of what a CWA score is. It's a uh, alcohol withdrawal evaluation score. And if you had a score of less than eight or you had a pause score of less than four, and the pause is a predictor of alcohol withdrawal scores. So that basically uses your history, the amount of drinking you've done in the past. Have you had things like an alcohol withdrawal seizure before to predict whether or not you would have one in the future? So if you had a low score on the two of those, you were basically admitted to like a standard care uh, pathway, which include thiamine, folic acid, multivitamins, maintenance fluid, so no medication because you had theoretically a very low risk of withdrawal. For people with a higher Paul score, so greater than or equal to four, or a CWA greater than or equal to eight, you were admitted to kind of the main stem uh, medication arm. And in that arm, you could select gabapentin at a dose of 1,200 milligrams by mouth as loading dose, going down to 800 milligrams TID to 600 to 300 TID day-to-day in the hospital. You could pick a low-dose gabapentin, which was basically the same loading dose, but it was 300 milligrams three times a day, then BID, then just at bedtime. You could use valproic acid. You could use clonidine. And you could use lorazepam if the CWA scores rose greater than 16. So you still had a benzo in there for very high withdrawal scores. And then the last group was basically your severe and uh, complex withdrawal. So these are patients that admit to the ICU or they had a CWA score greater than or equal to 15. And these patients were put on dexmatomidine. So they were in the ICU uh, on a drip there, which is kind of a cool medication for this indication. So I like the fact that they kind of had this protocol that not only kind of allowed you to predict and, you know, the clinician had judgment, especially if they had high suspicion, they didn't have to select one of these groups. Also, I think all of us have different comfort levels with those medications. So some of us, I think probably in primary care, we're probably most comfortable with gabapentin. Other people in psychiatry probably a little more comfortable with uh, valproic acid, but it kind of gave you options there to pick. I really like this protocol. Something that surprises me it dictates kind of what you can do at different days in alcohol withdrawal, but it goes all the way up to day 20. And gosh, I don't know if we ever keep anyone in the hospital for 20 days for alcohol withdrawal. That would be a, that would be a lot. Yeah. I don't think I've seen one that long, but I'd have to even think of more than a couple of days. I can't even think of that. It's great though. I mean, the other thing that's cool, I actually feel like I could cut out their protocol because as I said, it's day by day and even use it in the outpatient because it sort of says day one to three do gabapentin 800, then day four to five, gabapentin 600, and day six to seven, gabapentin 300. It kind of leads you through a day-by-day de-escalation protocol for alcohol withdrawal. So uh, I think this protocol is is really cool. I'm glad they did it. Yeah. So the question here is like, is this trial or really kind of the study kind of valid? You know, I think I was really impressed. It's a pretty large sample size of alcohol withdrawal patients, 22,899 You know, data capture was limited by documentation and coding. So this was basically chart review of coding and documentation uh, submissions. 
data regarding patient outcomes outside of the health system were unavailable. So like if a patient was admitted to a hospital and given one of these benzodiazepine uh, sparring protocols and didn't like it, they could go to another hospital outside of Kaiser. And so we don't really know what the follow-up for that would be like. This was really a retrospective quality improvement study. So it's really quasi-experimental, not a true RCT or one of our formal, either like a cohort study or a prospective study. Initiation of alcohol withdrawal order set was provider dependent. So not every provider used the withdrawal order set. So that does kind of limit how much it was initiated. It also begs the question, why wasn't it initiated? Was it truly provider outliers or were the providers uh, not feeling comfortable with that particular patient due to some other factor that they felt the need to do a different order set or, or a different protocol? There's no patient randomization. Intervention data was collected only over a 12-month period of time. So the intervention was only for a year. Patient center outcomes included mortality, length of stay, ICU admissions. Those are all very relevant to us on a day-to-day basis, especially with hospital medicine. And I like the fact that they adjusted for so many covariates because this really is a complicated topic, especially uh, treating kind of active withdrawal, you know, age, sex, inpatient, outpatient status uh, prior to admission, uh, weekdays and weekends. I think most of us that work in the hospital know that the hospital is a very different place between those two periods in time in terms of resource allocation and what you do. I like the fact that they also looked at things like, did the urine toxicology results possibly skew which order set you went down? And I think looking at severity as well was very useful with those uh, the COPS and the LAPS-2 score. It was funded by Kaiser Permanente Division of Research Delivery Science Targeted Analysis Program, the Kaiser Permanente Delivery Science Fellowship Program, and the NIH, or the National Institute of Health. What did you think, Sonia? I thought it was valid. I appreciated the large size, but I think it was maybe a little bit hamstrung by the fact that physicians didn't need to use the protocol. Like I have no idea how much they publicized it or promoted it. And of course, doctors are famously independent, so it's hard to force them all to use the same protocol. And patients, of course, are all different. So people need different care. But I really, you know, it it, people could choose whether or not they used this. And so I think there's maybe some selection bias as well. Who did the doctors choose to use this protocol for? And if it was a new protocol, would they perhaps shift people to, you know, they're less sick people to this newer protocol? So I worry about that a little bit, but I'm glad they did it. It's a pretty big study and a lot of work. Yeah. So kind of talking about the results, I think first kind of looking at the baseline characteristics, like I said, there's a pre and post period. So compared four years prior to the study or to the implementation of this quality improvement project, and then to the year afterwards, the year once it was implemented. The only thing really interesting off of the baseline characteristic is that things like observation versus admission, there was more observations before implementation than afterwards. Also, there was trending that uh, the LAPS-2 score co-founding things like fluid electrolyte disorders, peripheral vascular disease, liver disease, they were all actually much more common after implementation. And I think that kind of gives you an idea of kind of what a lot of us are seeing nationally where we're doing a lot more management outpatient. And I think that your inpatient patients tend to be a little bit sicker. So I do think that there's clear evidence from the baseline uh, characteristics here that probably the cohort that received this new protocol was probably a, a sicker cohort. So what were the results? Not surprising, benzodiazepine use declined substantially. So between the pre and post implementation period, there was a marked decrease in benzodiazepine use particularly lorazepam. And there was a marked increase of gabapentin use, 
and valproic acid, although clearly the, the winner here was probably gabapentin in terms of the ones that most people were using for seizure prophylaxis uh, when they were selecting a medication. Also, uh, the clonidine was also used as adjunct much higher post-implementation, so really kind of a, a decreased use in your benzodiazepines as expected and a much higher uh, use of non-benzodiazepine anticonvulsants and withdrawal medications. Okay, I can believe that. That makes sense. Pretty basic. I think, though, the other results that are kind of worth talking about is like, how did this really affect our patients, right? Because that's kind of at the end of the day what we're looking at. And the one things I would say is there was statistically significant improvements in both ICU admission and readmission rates after they implemented this protocol. So less patients escalated to the ICU and less patients were readmitted after implementation of this protocol. There was also a trend in inpatient mortality that improved throughout the study. However, you know, it was a trend. So the biggest outcomes were definitely ICU admission, though, and readmission rates were lower. I think at the very least, you could say that this is a non-inferiority in terms of treatment outcomes between the two. So that's kind of interesting in terms of the mortality rate. So no change there, just lower ICU, lower readmits. But those are all important. You know, it's great to keep people out of the ICU, great to prevent readmissions. And that's even without everybody using the new protocol. Yeah. It was just the existence of the new protocol yeah. that brought about this change. And people could use it or not, you know, if they wanted to. Yeah. I think it was interesting. And it was interesting too, like, you know, the mortality rate was 2% after implementation of this. That, that's, I think that's relatively high for alcohol withdrawal these days. So I think the fact that it, it does kind of reflect that probably the people that were receiving this were pretty sick and had high disease severity. I would hope that 2% didn't die from alcohol withdrawal as the primary diagnosis. I wonder if they had some other primary diagnosis with alcohol withdrawal as kind of a co-founding, you know, co-founding problem, you know, kind of incidental to admission if they had sepsis or trauma or something like that. You're probably right. So will these results help me in patient care? You know, like I said earlier, actually, like in full disclosure, I, I came from a training program that we made this switch um, my last year. And when I worked as a hospitalist there, we were using it routinely. And I actually found it kind of as a practitioner, very favorable. I, I really enjoyed this. I thought it worked well for patients. It served their needs. I think some of the difficulties with a benzodiazepine order set is that um, one is, you know, you're very dependent on these CWA scores. So there's a lot of user uh, variability in terms of what gets scored as what. I think there is times where patients do get more benzodiazepine than they need, and there's some disinhibition. It makes hospitalization longer and sometimes a more dangerous environment. And the patients really had very similar outcomes. So I liked it. The only thing I would say is that I work for a, a healthcare organization, and those kind of protocols are determined at the hospital level. So I'm not going to go rogue here and do my own thing, but I, I do think it's an area worth exploring in the future. I mean, maybe our system needs to do a quality improvement project of our own. This is true. I mean, I think that would be a really interesting idea. How about you? What do you think? Well, I really like it. Again, as I said, I don't do a lot of inpatient work, but I have been reading some recently about alcohol withdrawal in the outpatient setting. And this gave me some ideas for that process. And I think I will when I have patients who are admitted to the hospital with alcohol withdrawal. I don't think I'll enact a full protocol because we have an alcohol withdrawal protocol at St. Max's that's already well-established, written out, and the expectation is we would use it. But I think I'll probably promote maybe some of these adjunctive medications a little bit. And maybe it wouldn't necessarily prevent me from using the main protocol. But 
if I added gabapentin in preventatively, maybe the patients would require less benzodiazepine. Yeah, I feel like, you know, gabapentin is one of those medications that I feel like it's used for a little bit of everything. But I have seen studies about that being useful for patients with ongoing alcohol cravings. And I I think you might kind of kill two birds with one stone. I think it seems reasonable to use it at a, a moderate dose, as long as there's not other medication interactions or concerns. Yeah, I think it was a great paper. I'm really glad you decided to present it. Thanks. Yeah, it was a really good one. So I had a little bit of a follow-up that I would love to add for our listeners. You and I presented this article live to our colleagues at St. Max's. And after we finished the presentation, there were a lot of questions about randomized controlled trials in this area. And so I had asked our St. Max's medical librarian, and she looked around for additional articles for me on this topic. And I was really looking for a randomized controlled trial comparing a benzodiazepine-sparing and non-benzodiazepine-sparing alcohol withdrawal protocol. People have definitely been looking into non-benzodiazepine medications to treat alcohol withdrawal for a long time. Multiple trials exist showing that anticonvulsants like abapentin and valproate are effective when compared to benzodiazepines or placebo, but the trials always looked at like a single agent rather than a stepwise symptom trigger protocol using multiple medications as presented here. So I couldn't find any data at all on exactly what we were looking for, which was some kind of trial comparing the efficacy of a stepwise symptom-triggered alcohol withdrawal protocol using benzodiazepines to one not using benzodiazepines. Most of the articles I looked at ended on some variation of the phrase, there is an urgent need for further study in this area. So if there are any researchers out there, there is a uh, urgent need for further study in this area. And this appears to be an open research question. That'd be awesome. Yeah. It'd be great to see an RCT in this. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the article included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedjc. If you want to hear your comment in your own voice on the air, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. We received help from the St. Max's Medical Librarian. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing was by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day. 